Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We've seen the continuing stranglehold of the 45th president on the Republican Party, but are a few 2024 hopefuls beginning to crawl out from under his shadow? That would seem to be the case with the recent actions, drawn, to be sure, from Trump's playbook, by Governors Ron DeSantis of Florida and Greg Abbott of Texas. How far from the yoke can they get before Trump pulls back and the high-stakes, high-profile battle for control of the GOP is joined? More immediately, the Republican Party seems committed to a strategy for the midterms of culture war politics and tilting at windmills such as woke culture and critical race theory. But those tactics resonate with at least much of the base, and the critical question for the Democrats is what sort of messaging to run in opposition. Meanwhile, a lone federal judge in Florida laid to waste the Biden administration's mask mandate with a decision displaying some of the favorite hallmarks of modern-day judicial conservatism and adding the breathtaking activist feature of a nationwide injunction that effectively pushed the CDC to the sidelines. In order to preserve the CDC's ability to regulate a crisis that continues to dog national life, the administration has opted to appeal, but it's a risky enterprise given the strongly conservative leanings of the Court of Appeals above the District Court and, prospectively, the Supreme Court. To diagnose these political stress points and fractures, we welcome back three of the country's most experienced and knowledgeable analysts and political figures, and they are David Jolie, a former congressman who served in the U.S. House of Representatives from 2014 to 2017. David has held virtually every position in Congress from intern to member and has worked outside the Congress as an attorney and political consultant as well as in specialty finance. Today, he can often be seen as a policy and politics analyst on MSNBC and CNN, and he's been published widely in national outlets. David Jolie... Thank you very much for returning to Talking Feds. Good to be with you, Harry. Senator Barbara Boxer, a former U.S. Congresswoman and Senator representing California. She served from 1983 to 2017, the last 24 years in the Senate, where she gained a reputation as one of the Congress's most stalwart progressives. Her memoir, The Art of Tough, Fearlessly Facing Politics and Life was published in 2016. Senator Barbara Boxer, welcome back to Talking Feds. Sure. And Representative Joaquin Castro, elected in 2012 to serve as a representative of Texas's 20th congressional district. He is now in his fourth term in the House, where he serves on the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence the House Foreign Affairs Committee, the Education and Labor Committee, and as chair of the Texas Democratic Caucus. Before his election to Congress, Congressman Castro served five terms as a Texas state representative. Representative Joaquin Castro, welcome back to Talking Feds. Good to be with you again. All right. So it feels as if the shadow of the 2024 presidential election is already starting to fall across the country with potential Republican candidates jockeying for prominence with maneuvers 
drawn straight out of former President Trump's playbook. So I wanted to start with the man who's most clearly gunning to succeed Trump as the standard bearer of the party, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He went to war this week with Walt Disney Company, not normally considered an incarnation of the liberal elite, but the trigger was Disney's opposition to his parental rights in education bill, or what critics have been calling the don't say gay bill that bans teachers from teaching students about sexual orientation and gender issues. I thought I could start with you, David, with your experience in Florida. You know, he's taking on the business community and making Florida look isolated. Is it sort of Trumpy in spite or is it smart politics in the context of Florida? Well, in today's Republican Party, Harry, it's both. Trumpy in spite is smart politics in today's GOP, and it suggests kind of the vacuous generation we are in in terms of Republican leadership. I think what's most fascinating about Ron DeSantis's fight with Disney is not that it represents really a breakup of a political relationship that has been decades in the making between Florida Republicans and, and Walt Disney World. The real concern here and the historical significance of what Ron DeSantis has done is the retaliatory aspect of it against the public speech of Walt Disney. And that is the governor is using the laws of the state of Florida to retaliate against the public speech of Walt Disney. That is incredibly concerning. And understand this is not, as some Republicans will say, about whether or not Walt Disney as a corporation should have special jurisdiction over its own roads and utilities. There are plenty of different jurisdictions in Florida that have that type of private recognition. The Villages, the Republican Stronghold Retirement Community, Daytona International Speedway, the Orlando Airport. This was not about the proper governance of local jurisdictions. This happened because Walt Disney's leadership took a public position in opposition to the governor's position on the don't say gay bill. But also, and this is an intriguingly almost constitutional question, though it would never uh, reach a court's disposition on this. Ron DeSantis's actions followed Walt Disney saying, we are going to pause our political giving. We are no longer going to give money to Florida Republicans in this environment. That is big. And look, as I understand it, they are the biggest employer in Florida. And you say he used the law, but he really jammed through a new law through the legislature. It was chaotic. There's like a page of legislative history. So, you know, maybe it does wind up in the courts. But Disney is now saying, we're really going to hurt you in your pocketbook, your employees. It certainly seems like it's more than a kind of gratuitous swipe at a woke position. He's really ready to lose some money for Florida, no? Well, he is, but he's also putting an additional tax burden on Central Florida taxpayers who now have to assume the operations of Disney's infrastructure. Right. CNBC recently called it a billion-dollar debt bomb on Florida taxpayers. Now, very interestingly, Harry, this happened in a special session of the legislature, and the revocation of the special privileges for Disney, the revocation does not occur until next June meaning there will be a legislative session where perhaps they could all make up and break bread. Mm. But it would be interesting if Disney's even willing to entertain some type of reconciliation at this point. I wouldn't think they would be. So just to be clear, this special allowance that Disney has is to run its own show, but that's a lot of money. And now they'll have to come in and run it. 
All right, we've got a parallel. Uh, you know, might say the Tweedledee to Tweedledum, uh, 700 miles or so to the west in Texas, another specialist on the scene, Congressman Castro. So we have Governor Abbott also, it would seem, vying for attention in 2024. For the past couple weeks, he's gone rogue basically at the border and ordered these secondary inspections of commercial trucks in a thinly veiled attempt to regulate immigration, which of course the state governor has no power to do. So the same issue here, it was costing the state and the country billions of dollars and Beto O'Rourke was having a field day with it and Abbott backed down. If I could ask you, Congressman, you know, was this just sort of a complete blunder on his part, or as David points out for Florida, kind of smart playing to the political base that he wants to keep in the fold? Well, I think David's right. I think that people like DeSantis and Greg Abbott are trying to be clones of Trump. They're very much following in Trump's footsteps, where you do these very brash, very divisive things that play to the far right and the deep Republican base. And you can get away with that to some extent politically in red states. Florida has been more or less a red state for a while now. Not quite like Texas, but you know, Texas has been red. It's finally trending more to the middle where Democrats are competitive, but still hasn't been there yet. And so Abbott feels like he can get away with it. And I think he's trying to position himself for 2024. And that political stunt at the border where they started inspecting every truck found nothing. They literally found no illegal drugs. Right. Literally zero. Yeah. They found zero and it cost two or $3 billion was the final cost uh, on those unnecessary inspections. And yet Greg Abbott is going around touting it as though it's a victory or success when really it was just a, a political stunt. And so I'm hoping that Beto O'Rourke and his campaign this year against Greg Abbott can finally help turn the tide for Democrats in Texas. He is touting it that way. It's certainly a political stunt. Is it a successful one or a mistake? He had to back down, but nevertheless, it seems like the things that play as patently inane on the national scene might actually be crazy like a fox in the uh, specific politics of Texas and Florida. You know, if you just looked at it politically, I think time will tell. November will tell, obviously, and the years after that, whether very divisive things like this, which are just purely political, whether they will continue to benefit Texas Republicans or whether this really marks for a lot of people who are obviously on the left, but either center or even center right, where these become the final straws to those voters. And they just say, you know, I'm done with these clowns. I'm going to move on. You know, for example, the, the Republican Party in Texas built its whole platform off this idea that Texas was the number one state for business in the country, that they were the pro-business party, that there was an economic Texas miracle. And now you just cost two or $3 billion to the people of Texas and the people of the country because of what you were doing to international trade. Yeah, and people, I gather from what Beto said, felt it even in the grocery stores. Senator, you're kind of a neutral observer here, but obviously a very acute observer of the national landscape. So what's your sense of these two prominent figures in waiting? These guys are going to be emerging at one point or another to be taking on Trump if they really are serious about 2024. What do you think about them? Whom do you fear uh, more, et cetera? Well, let me just say I'm not neutral. 
I just want to make that clear. I've been watching these two and they disgust me. Yeah, uh, they do. And I'll tell you why. I agree with everything that was said prior, everything, everything. But let me add just a little color to, to it at this point. I grew up in politics when the Republican Party was like David. And we had our disagreements around the edges, but we fought for every vote. And both parties wanted to get the women's vote. Both parties wanted to get the minority vote. Both parties wanted the environmental vote. And I could go on and on. Now we're in this Trumpian era. And I agree. These two are Trump 2.0. Are they worse? In some ways, yeah. Because I do believe they know better. I think Trump is in another world and he's got issues that I don't think allow him to be normal. But these two don't have to do this. So what are they practicing? They're practicing the politics of hate and fear and anger. And it just breaks my heart to see uh, what they're doing in Abbott's case. It's against immigrants. My family came from abroad. So many of us in this country. It's an insult to Americans. And not only is it a matter of doing these ridiculous uh, checks at the border, but also they sent immigrants to D.C. in a bus. That's how you treat people. This is Texas, again, costing the state money. But it's not just the it's costing the state money. That's not the point. Of His course. point is to make life really difficult for immigrants and to get people to hate immigrants. Well, I think it's going to backfire because it's costing in the pocketbook and Beto O'Rourke is very, very smart and his uh, supporters are. And in Florida, going against the LGBT community is stupid at the end of the day. And I'll tell you why I say that. I was here in California when there was a negative attitude. And then all of a sudden we recognize here they are in every family that we know. I think it's going to backfire at the end of the day. But the way I feel about it is America has to wake up. And I don't like the idea of focusing on 2024. It's too far away. We must focus on 2022. We cannot let these Trumpian people take over our government in 2022. We've got to fight and not just skip over to 2024. So let's stick with that for a second. And I'll serve this up to both the congressman and David in turn. So you have with DeSantis, it wasn't just the don't say gay act. You know, there's been all kinds of winnowing out of math textbooks and the like. And he says, we don't want to indoctrinate concepts like race essentialism for elementary school students. And then in a similar way, you have Abbott very clearly going at migrants, Title 42, et cetera. So the, the question is, for both of you in different aspects, is this dog whistle politics on Abbott's part to play into anti-immigrant and migrant prejudice and in DeSantis's part to actually play into racism? Well, look, I, I think what you're seeing from Governor DeSantis and Abbott is a, a rather orthodox view of conservatism that belongs more in the church house than the state house. Mm -hmm. And I would suggest that not only can it be cynical and border on racism and xenophobia and homophobia, but it is also turning America's eyes backwards, not forward. And what I mean about that is if you just take the ban of books and critical race theory, look, I think it's important that all Florida students learn that white America has benefited from being the exclusive founding class of this country. 
That does not bring shame on white America, but it's an important narrative and part of our history. And it raises questions about whether or not this country has done enough to create ladders of opportunities for all communities, including communities of color and marginalized communities that did not benefit from the first 150 years of American history. And when it comes to the teaching or or the prohibition that is within the don't say gay bill, You know, no parent out there would suggest that a teacher should indoctrinate a first grader on sexual identity. But the current law actually allows schools and parents to address that if it's happening. What this law actually does is it prohibits a teacher from acknowledging their own sexual identity. If they are in a same-sex relationship or same-sex marriage and they acknowledge that before a first grade student, now a parent has a private right of action against that homosexual teacher, essentially putting that teacher under the eyes of the laws of the state of Florida back into the closet. That's what Governor DeSantis is doing in Florida. It's not just cynical, it's homophobia. We can talk about whether or not the policies on CRT and the book banning are actually racist, but what it is doing is it's pulling our culture backwards at a time when we should be moving forward together. And also, by the way, encouraging these kinds of lawsuits. That's a common theme of some of these, actually encouraging people to be sort of fighting in the courts. It sounds to me like you're saying it is pulling things back and bordering on, and that might not necessarily be rank racism, but nevertheless. It's ignorant. It's ignorant. Yeah, and and retrogressive in in certain important ways, or regressive, I should say. Congressman, did you have some thoughts about the Texas landscape here and the sort of appeal to the lesser angels of our nature, as it were? Let me take you back to um, right after the 2012 election and the Republican autopsy, and there was a debate about which direction they would take and whether they would become more inclusive. And for a brief period of time before Ted Cruz led that government shutdown, the party was actually starting to move there. The Senate in those years passed a comprehensive immigration reform bill with like 68 votes and it died in the House of Representatives. But I was always skeptical that the Republican Party would become more inclusive because I'm from Texas and I've seen what Texas Republicans have done over the years in using the border as a boogeyman to constantly scare mostly white Texans about the idea that there's all these brown people that are coming to harm you. And so what you see is really a numbers game with the modern Republican Party. Donald Trump took him in the direction where realizing that politics is a competition of which lens you can get a voter to see the world through. And Donald Trump figured out that if you can get most people to see the world through a racial lens, that white Americans still make up 60-something percent of the voters in this country. And if that's the predominant lens through which things are filtered, By the numbers, you still win in most places. And so that's where I think that Abbott and DeSantis are following that model in creating all these different resentments, not just racial resentments, cultural resentments as well. But what you don't see from the Republican Party right now is really any kind of positive or affirmative agenda about how to benefit the country. The standard used to be low taxes, low regulation, right? None of them spend any time making that case anymore. Uh, And then when you do what what Greg Abbott did, costing the country billions of dollars, you can't really say you're the pro-business party at that point. And so, so yeah, I think it's a lot of cultural division. It's a lot of a stoking of fear and resentment. And I agree with the senator. You've got a lot of Republicans who actually know they shouldn't be doing it. They know that it's not good for the country. Some of them, I think, and I may be giving them too much credit, but I think some of them don't even really believe it. Uh, But they're doing it because they think that's the winning formula. 
And it's a numbers game, and they think they can win that way. You know, this is beyond the scope of today's episode, but what an incredible example of that we got in the last 24 hours hearing about McCarthy and McConnell basically knowing that Trump knew that he had instigated the insurrection and just for a moment looking like they might respond in some sense of duty to country and but then backing completely away and embracing something they know is false. Harry, can, can I draw a thread from what we're talking about to the insurrection, though? Because yeah, please I, I do. do think it's important. The congressman was right that Donald Trump figured out this very powerful lens through which he asked Republicans to see the view of the world, and it was based on race and class. But there's a nuance that he pulled off that makes it dangerous, not just around these themes of racism and others. It's the fact that Donald Trump convinced America, the white America, that something was being taken from them. Their place in society was being taken. Their job was being taken. Their privilege was being taken. How they wanted their kids trained was being taken. And the reason that's so dangerous is if you convince somebody that something's being taken from them, then retaliation is permissible. Now you're in the realm of, okay, if I have to storm the Capitol now to take your back flight. Yep. my country, take back what's mine, then that's okay. Everybody, and we saw this again, and you tied the insurrection to it with McCarthy, tiptoes around Trump, considers him the number one person in the party. DeSantis obviously is little by little inching up and wanting to become the standard bearer. Do you see him pretty soon as doing the thing that every Republican seems mortally afraid of doing, basically stepping out and saying, it's me, not him? And when does he do it by? I think he's going to have to. And Harry, I think Ron DeSantis is currently the standard bearer of the Republican Party. Already, as we as we talk. Okay. Already. And I think the only person that could stop a clean run to the White House by Ron DeSantis is Donald Trump because it adds this complexity about whether or not the party's willing to embrace Donald Trump one more time. Understand, the party is well aware that Donald Trump lost the 18 midterms for Republicans and handed it to Democrats. He lost the 2020 presidential race, and he also lost the Georgia runoffs. Donald Trump is not a winning candidate in this environment. Ron DeSantis is. I believe if Ron DeSantis was the nominee today against Joe Biden, the polls would show a neck and neck race and Ron DeSantis perhaps even leading Joe Biden. Ron DeSantis represents the popularity of Trump's populism to the American right without the baggage of Donald Trump. And now that brings with it the culture wars, the use of the administrative state to quash independent thinking and and to quash speech. But that's the state of today's Republican Party. I think if Ron DeSantis were to enter the Republican primary for president. It would look a lot like the 2000 primary. It would be more of a coronation of Ron DeSantis, just as we saw a coronation of Bush 43. In the Republican Party today, it's Ron DeSantis and everybody else. Let's bring this lens out and talk about 2022, Senator. I want to bring this to you because what the Dems should do, because this is obviously a visceral, emotional appeal. And there's the perennial debate now in the party. Senator Warren had a pretty influential article saying we've got to just keep pounding our achievements and continue to log them between now and November. Is the party just continually fighting, this is the Democratic Party, on a kind of landscape where 
there's just this emotional appeal that rationality can't necessarily pierce. Okay. I think anyone with a heartbeat and a pulse knows what's going on. And David just expressed it. Yeah. If you look back at Nazi Germany, and I don't need to say this lightly as a Jewish American, Hitler turned against the minorities and said, they're taking everything away from you. And we see this happening. This is a dangerous time. So while I agree with Elizabeth that we've done some good stuff, obviously, by the numbers, and Congressman Castro knows those better than I, whether it's jobs created, a deficit reduction, all this is a good story. Yeah, we can wrap that up into a nice piece. But there's far more to say to people. I think we need to be honest with people and say, we've had American values in this country since our founding. And, you know, there's one party that's willing to step out and fight for those values. And there's another one who's tearing it apart. And, you know, let it be what it is. But we cannot just say, oh, everything is great because everything is not great. And the reason it's not great is we have people, you know, in the far right in this country, sadly, who are playing on our fears of the other. And it must be addressed by the political party that that really does get it. We can't just ignore it. And I just want to say again to David, because I don't get a chance to really talk to him much personally how much I am moved by your courage oh, thank you. and, and Liz Cheney's courage and Adam Kinzinger and a handful of people because all these other cowards out there and, you know, it was the GOP. Now I think it's the POC, the party of cowards. <laughs> They're so scared of Trump. They're so scared of their own shadow. Yeah. They don't deserve to be in power. We cannot ignore it. Now, last point I'd make about my darling Democratic friends who I adore, we are a very big tent. When I started out as the biggest liberal, now they say I'm a mainstream, but fine, whatever I am, I'm Barbara Boxer. But we need to be open to each other in our party and understand that we have to make it a plus, not a minus, and say from the left to the right, we don't agree on everything, but we agree on basic American values and we will fight for democracy and those values. And by the way, while we're doing that, look at some of the great achievements we've made. So it's a chance for me to say that to, to both these influencers here because I'm not in that category anymore. But I think we better be clear. We're not gonna win if we run on our accomplishments. We're just not. It's gotta be more than that. We have to appeal to the heart and soul of the people of the country. Congressman, could I ask for your reaction here? But in a really sort of clear-eyed way, everyone here would agree with the senator, but we've, you know, the Democratic Party has seen a, a series of victories, at least by some Trumpian forces. So is it the right move to run into that sort of rhetorical buzzsaw? Is it, on the other hand, the right move to stay outside of it and just talk about the kitchen table accomplishments of the party? It's not an easy question, I think. And, and obviously, there's a lot of internal debate. Where do you see it for Texas and the party for purposes of 2022? As we think about that, we have to think about the historical context. With only a few exceptions, over the last many decades, the president's party gets popped in the midterms. So you know that you're facing a strong a headwind, sometimes a very strong headwind. And if you look at the polling for Democrats, it looks like 
we're facing a pretty strong headwind. And so in that situation, what do you do? Uh, I can't say that I have a perfect answer or a crystal ball. I think people have to know what you've done, the affirmative things that you've done that are good and the low unemployment rate and all the jobs you've created and the infrastructure bill and the omnibus that's going to do great things for people. But I do think that you have to, let me put it this way, I don't think that you can let all of these allegations that Republicans are making, some of which are just straight out odd and weird and strange, go completely unchallenged. Because there's so many ways that a message, even a lie, can spread to so many people today. Our media is so unmoderated through social media, especially now, that if you let lies go unchallenged, then you will end up with a big percentage of the American people believing the lies. So I've been especially troubled about all of these things where basically a lot of Republicans have now mainstreamed what started off as QAnon conspiracy theories on pedophiles and grooming and all these things. And you got to be able to combat that somehow. And yes, clamp down on the social media companies to make sure that you can cut the spread of it and other platforms. But I think you also have to dispel it. I, I don't know that it's wise to let it go completely unchallenged. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. And today we want to explain the law of war as it pertains to civilian casualties. Putin and Russia stand accused of killing and harming many civilians. The law of war sees it as inevitable and permissible for there to be some civilian casualties, but when do they cross the line and become war crimes? That's what we're going to hear about today, and we're going to hear about it from Jason Gray Stanford. Jason stars as Lieutenant Randy Disher in the Emmy, SAG, and Golden Globe winning TV show Monk. He's appeared also in numerous series, including Grey's Anatomy, The X-Files, and The Boys. So I give you Jason Gray Stanford on civilian casualties and the law of war. Can Putin be prosecuted for war crimes for targeting Ukrainian citizens? The recent revelation that hundreds of Ukrainian civilians were killed in Bucha by Russian forces has triggered a call for Russian President Vladimir Putin and other responsible Russian officials to be prosecuted for war crimes. President Biden expressly proclaimed Putin a war criminal who needs to be held accountable. But how would that work? First, there are rules to war. All 196 nations have ratified the Geneva Conventions, which provide the core tenets of international humanitarian law and define the bounds of war conduct. Killing of civilians is not, in every case, a war crime. If the killings are incidental or unintended, they may be within the bounds of the law so long as they are proportionate to the goals of the war action. But direct targeting of civilians, and proof is strong that Russia has done exactly that, is a clear and particularly grave war crime. Typically, the hardest element to prove is intent. It's a painstaking task that can require years of investigation. Prosecutors typically rely on witnesses here that Putin intentionally ordered the killings. There are other ways to prove intent as well. For example, patterns of attacks on civilian areas or the use of cluster munitions of the sort that generally are used to target mass gatherings of armed forces. Russia has done both. The next question is where the case would be brought. 
The most likely candidate would be the International Criminal Court headquartered in The Hague, Netherlands. Sometimes the UN Security Council creates ad hoc tribunals to deal with particular conflict. For example, the 1998-99 war in Kosovo. However, Russia would almost certainly veto any such attempt in the Security Council. Any court trying Putin for war crimes would need to physically compel his presence and impose any punishment on him. Perhaps the most prominent success of the International Criminal Court was its prosecution of Slobodan Milosevic, the former president of Yugoslavia, on 66 counts of crimes against humanity, genocide, and sundry war crimes. Milosevic's trial lasted from February 2002 until his death in March 2006. But the trial was only possible because of the regime change in Yugoslavia and the decision of the successor government to extradite him for prosecution. Thus, while Russian forces likely have committed war crimes, prosecutors would need to assemble proof of Putin's criminal responsibility and, in particular, his intentional ordering of killings of civilians. But so long as Putin remains in power, there is no real prospect of him being brought to justice in the International Criminal Court. For Talking Feds, I'm Jason Gray Stanford. Thank you very much, Jason Gray Stanford. In 2018, Jason was diagnosed with heart failure, and he's recently begun to speak about his successful recovery from heart transplant surgery. He is speaking up to help raise awareness for organ donations and cardiovascular health. So thank you very much, Jason Gray Stanford. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we break out the three types of vodka to see if there's a clear difference. Vodka is typically a colorless, flavorless spirit. Serve neat and freezer chilled. Simple, right? But long before the shot glasses are topped off and toasts are shouted, there's a fermenting process. For vodka, that process involves distilling an organic base like barley, rye, wheat, even potatoes or corn to make one of three types of vodka, plain, flavored, and infused. Rye can add a heavier texture and spice. Barley may be a little lighter and mild, while potatoes can add a creamy mouthfeel. Unflavored is the simplest and most traditional form of vodka, with a mixture of 40% ethanol and 60% water. Flavored vodka has recently become extremely popular, adding flavors that range from fruit to dessert-inspired options, like chocolate. A charcoal-filtered vodka provides a smoother taste, perfect for creating a chocolate martini that tastes as great as it sounds. Lastly, there's infused vodka, also known as botanical vodka, where the distillers infuse the vodka by adding ingredients like herbs, flowers, spices, and fruit, which are steamed into the spirit during the distillation process. It's an excellent choice to dial your drink in any flavor direction you want. The best part of them all is that you don't have to travel the world to find the greatest vodkas. Your local Total Wine & More has a large selection of every type and flavor, so all you have to do is clear out a little extra room in your freezer. So find what you love and love what you find, only at Total Wine & More. Cheers!
Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. I want to move now to a development that is big on so many levels, the striking down of the Biden mask mandate by a district judge in, yes, Florida, and the entry of a nationwide injunction. So let's start here. There seemed to be a sense of like triumph on the right, again, representing this kind of emotional valence as opposed to the Democrats' disposition toward rationality and and science. And, and, you know, we're hearing that the judge is sort of a folk hero to the right. David, starting here as as a Republican and from Florida, how do you explain the ferocity of the opposition to masks on the right, notwithstanding if it's good medical practice or not? What's this sense of triumph and casting off of the yoke of government and the like? Well, Harry, I think we have to look at it in in the context of the timestamp of where we are today. The nation is exhausted from having to wear masks. We're exhausted by lockdowns, and rightfully so, regardless of politics, just culturally, our entire culture was interrupted by this pandemic. And what you saw was responsible policymakers embrace public health recommendations that included masks and realize this isn't fun. We don't like this. Nobody wants to perpetuate masks on the American people but it is in accordance with public health guidance. Republicans seizing on this drug of freedom over the collective good of society and our public health have been fighting to push back on any public health recommendations because they saw political benefit. I mean, it's an irresponsible take, but it has this real currency within today's low information politics. So when the judge struck down the CDC's recommended mask mandate, Republicans were happy to seize on that and say, let's take a victory lap. This is what we've been asking for all along. But that victory lap took them past a lot of graveyards that they're unwilling to look at or acknowledge. Senator, is this just sort of general everyone's fatigue, but the Democrats are more grown up about it? Or (laughs) is this part of the sort of Trumpian polarized dynamic that the country's in more generally? Well, I'd like to separate it all out. I think we're all exhausted. We're sick of this. Yeah. We, are, we are tired. We're worried still. And it just gets harder and harder. And, you know, as someone who's a little bit on the older side at this point, you know, we have some choices to make in our household. My husband and I were married 60 years, I might say. Yay. Mazel tov. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> are we going to spend our golden years turning them into stolen years? Uh, we're not going to do that. But we're also going to be as careful as we can be using the tools that, forgive me for saying this, but, you know, I always thought it was an American value that doctors tell you what to do about your health, not senators or presidents. So let me just talk about the decision. Let's set aside it was a Trumpy judge and whatever. There's two points I want to make. The first one is, I can't believe that any judge who was qualified could say that CDC has no right to tell us whether we'll save our lives if we wear a mask. So that's why it's great that they are appealing this. It may well be that in a couple of weeks they were going to take off the mask mandate. But to me, the main issue is who is the guardian of our health? And when I have a cough, with all due respect, I do not call my friend Mitch McConnell. It's ridiculous. So this is very important, uh, this appeal of this decision. I am heartened to say 
it's very interesting that the majority of Americans polled after this decision said they felt it was important to wear masks in public transportation. I'm at the point, I honestly feel, if you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. Wear two, sometimes I do. And, you know, let's follow to the best we can as individuals what the people we trust are saying about this. And I think most Americans would trust their own physician because that's important, or the CDC or, or the folks in your own state. This thing has gotten to be a mess. But I think the winning message is don't call your senator or Governor DeSantis when you don't feel good. Continue to follow your doctor's advice. And that's how I would take it. I mean, how dare they? I mean, did you see DeSantis? He had a presser with some kids in your state, David, and he was angry because a couple of the kids were wearing masks. How dare he tell them what to do? So we have to be stronger, tougher, meet fire with fire with these people who are overstepping their qualifications, in my view. And it's also a problem because everything you say is right. You look to medical advice, but the reason for the mass is also because of its effect on other people. So if it's just simply voluntary, it's equivalent to not following CDC at all. Here's my point. This is where it is today. Yeah. It is really, it's confusing right now. We've got this judge who threw out the mandate. We've got governors on all sides of it. We've got mayors on all sides of it. So what I'm trying to do is talk to the American people and say, look, I don't care what party you're in, but you know if you're susceptible to this, if you have an underlying condition, if you're old. We know a lot of these things. And so do what's right. And I do think you talk to your own doctor. I mean, I wouldn't think of going indoors to the store without having a mask on. I just wouldn't. I'm healthy as I could be, but I'm older and I know I'm vulnerable. I put a mask on and you're right. It's also to care about other folks. But you know what? At this point in this epidemic, with everybody saying something different, it's time that we all discuss this with our physician. And until there's clarity And until there are politicians that admit they're not doctors, a lot of this rests on our shoulders. That's how I feel about it. I'm not going to, you know, have these great arguments with people over it. Just follow the recommendations of the doctors and the public health experts, because otherwise you're in danger and you're endangering other people. That is the issue, of course, because the rubber hits the road on a mandate. So, David, how risky is this appeal? They're going to the 11th Circuit. It's very conservative. There's the possibility, not just of this bad decision, but a kind of ongoing bad law being made there or the Supreme Court. What's your sense of the legal landscape? I think it's a risk that the administration has to take, and we should hope that the ultimately Supreme Court decides this correctly. Harry, the entire premise of a state, of a nation state, is to ensure and protect the collective security of the people, the shared security of a people, the the national security, the economic security, and yes, the health security. To suggest that in the midst of a worldwide pandemic, that a government agency that has been stood up under law does not have the authority to provide public health conditions to protect the collective from a pandemic would eviscerate the whole idea of public health. And so I think that is the question for the courts. Should there be limits? Of course. And those limits should be determined as to whether or not there is evidence sufficient 
to require some type of public health measures. And I would point out, I appreciate the senator's reflection on the stage of her and her husband and what the public health pandemic means for them. I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And so I would say that this decision was not made in a vacuum because our children are not qualified yet for the vaccine. So what does that mean to a vulnerable population of kids under five? Are we now more or less comfortable taking our family on a plane? I would say less comfortable today as a result of the decision of a single federal judge sitting in Tampa. Yeah, and the nationwide injunction. In fact, let's get to that in a moment because it does come to some sense of civic responsibility. And that's, along with the rule of law, something that feels to me has been abandoned by the Trumpian right. You know, there's a kind of middle finger being given to that whole concept (laughs) of taking care of others. But that's essentially what you're talking about. Yeah, well, if I could take a point of personal privilege on this, because there is the examination of the role of the state, right? But you raise the issue, and the senator did as well, about culturally, should we be looking out for our fellow American. And as someone who came up through the religious right, this whole notion of what would Jesus do became this like principle of what our behavior was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And as the Republican Party adopt and embrace the religious right, and even as DeSantis and Abbott today suggest their policymaking is to elevate the values of the religious right. Well, come on, people, what would Jesus do in a pandemic if you have a contagion? You would protect yourself and your fellow American and your fellow traveler from that contagion. But that's anathema today's Republican politics. And it also suggests the hypocrisy undermining the leaders that lead the party today. Can I chime in here? Because what David just did right there is so important. He's basically saying this party, which embraced the whole notion that we care about each other because that's what Jesus said. I think we let them off the hook too much. Yes. And one of the things I often say when they go after gay people, when they go after immigrants, when they go after poor people, when they go after black people, and when they do these awful things, I always say, we are all God's children. And why don't you understand that? If you embrace religion, why don't you understand that? I want to go to the most outrageous aspect, in my view, of the opinion. So she didn't just decide for one district, but she decided for the entire country, enters a nationwide injunction. Here's the reasoning. You have two plaintiffs who have anxiety and mass aggravate that anxiety. So she finds it's unlawful. And then she says, well, there's no way to distinguish them from all the other travelers. So we have to shut down the mandate for the whole country. That's, I think, patently ridiculous. Right now, we're going to have people, some with masks, some without. They could just give these two anxious women a piece of paper that says, you know, I've got the right from the court. Do we need a legislative solution here to make CDC more empowered? Or what is the answer to this breathtaking power by a single district court judge? Is it maybe a question of a legislative solution to nationwide injunctions? What, if anything, might the Congress be able to do here in our current political climate? My obvious view is that this judge is off the wall, and hopefully we don't need legislation. Look, why do we have a CDC? If they can't take action nationwide, we are in the deepest trouble, because who knows what's coming down the pike next. 
there are diseases we can't even imagine that could be coming forward. And I don't want to get more depressed than I am now, but <laughs> we, we cannot have a judge decide that there's no way we can fight back. People will die, they'll keel over. It's as simple as that. And when you had Trump's, Trump's advisor on coronavirus. Oh, Deborah Burks. Thank yeah, you yeah. so much. So when you have Deborah Poor thing. Brooks, what a tough job that was. I mean, huh? seriously, coming out and saying to everyone and putting it in a book, 100,000 Americans died needlessly because he wouldn't do a better job on vaccines and masks. Think about that. Where would we be if he had gotten reelected? So my point is, I don't have a degree in law, although my husband does, my son does, and my dad did. So by osmosis, I picked up a couple of things here and there, listening to you as well, Harry. But the bottom line is, why do we have a CDC? If this stands, <laughs> who, who is going to protect us? You can't do it state by state. Because guess what? We're right over the hill from Arizona. Does it work? So, Harry, I would suggest one thing we're seeing is in the last 20 to 30 years of conservatism, this embrace of less government has turned into an embrace of no government. And what I think we see in kind of the judicial decision on the mask mandate is a judge who is suggesting because one person is inconvenienced or irritated by a mask, therefore, the state cannot require it. The government cannot require it. But that simply cannot be true in the presence of a government, of a state, of a nation state whose responsibility is to provide for the security of all people. We don't allow an individual who disagrees with a decision of national security, the idea to engage in a theater in the Balkans or the Middle East or Ukraine. We don't allow an individual American to say that's antithetical to my values. Therefore, you must restrict the president from engaging in it. We don't invest in an individual a right of action against the Fed for raising the base rate half a point, and therefore it costs more to buy a house. Those decisions are made for the national security and economic security of a collective people, just as the CDC must be vested with the responsibility of making public health decisions that best represents the needs of our community. What the judicial decision in Tampa represents is this no government approach to conservatism that I think we will continue to see in the judiciary. Is there a legislative solution? Probably not other than the actions of a Senate to confirm justices and judges that actually reflect responsible judiciary posture, even those with the conservative view of the law. It's a great point. And I do think in general, there's this immediate way in which conservatives are cheering it as a political result. But it really does, to me, go against the grain of judicial conservatism, and which I consider myself one of, to be so. It's a little short-sighted about this kind of power and the nationwide injunction. So we'll see what happens because there's a scenario where either the 11th Circuit or the Supreme Court keep it that way and are completely polarized, Senate can't do anything about it, and then the professionals who should be calling the shots here are kind of sidelined. And that, as the virus possibly continues to wax and wane, could be disastrous. All right, we have just a minute left for our final feature of Talking Five, where we take a question from a listener and we often answer in five words or fewer. Today's question is from Callie Walker. It comes out of the 
disqualification action. So what's happening right now with Marjorie Taylor Greene, Madison Cawthorn, the Constitution states qualifications for office. Donald Trump came to uh, national prominence saying that Barack Obama was not qualified because he wasn't born in the, the country. For members of Congress, there's four qualifications, age, citizen for seven years, live in the state that you represent, and you can't aid an insurrection. That's, that's Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So the question is, if you could add one more, one more qualification only, what would it be? Five words or fewer, please. Okay. You can't lie. <laughs> Man, that, that's a toughie though, huh? <laughs> oh, it really? No be. lying? No fair. How are we going to have good public <laughs> servants anymore? Okay. Uh, you need patience. <laughs> competence. One of my greatest disappointments was seeing the lack of competence uh, within the halls of Congress. Competence, one word. Okay. I'm still going to use five. <laughs> no contributions, public money only. All right. We are out of time. Thank you so much to Representative Joaquin Castro, former Representative David Jolie, and former Senator Barbara Boxer. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. We're available on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. And we now also have our own YouTube channel, which you can find by going to YouTube and typing in Talking Feds. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these aren't simply outtakes or ad-free episodes, though we do post those there, but original one-on-one discussions with national experts. Just in the last few days, we've posted discussions with Gretchen Carlson, former Fox News reporter, about the recent federal legislation that she helped create and steward into law, ending forced arbitration in cases of workplace sexual harassment, and with Charlie Savage about Putin and war crimes and the United States gingerly efforts to support the International Criminal Court. So there's really a wealth of great stuff there. You can go look at it to see what we've got and decide if you'd like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez. Associate producer, Olivia Henriksen. Assistant producer, Matt McArdle. Sound engineering by Adam Macias. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to Jason Gray Stanford for explaining the law of war and civilian casualties. Our gratitude as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. 
Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.